from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, inside Salesforce's green building strategy, how the G20, or maybe it's 19, are pushing climate disclosure, China's clean tech ascent, and General Motors' road to sustainable tires. What goes around comes around this week on 350. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back. It's July 14th, 2017, Bastille Day in France. Bonjour, and welcome to this week's episode of GreenBiz 350. I'm Joel McCower, and with me is GreenBiz senior writer Lauren Hepler. Hello there, Lauren. Hey, Joel. How's it going? It's going, man. It's, I don't know, whoever whoever talked once upon a time about a summer slowdown, I mean, that just seems quaint and uh, years ago, but it's just, things are just hopping. I know, I hear you, especially after the 4th of July, it seems like everybody's back in the office and the G20, all kinds of stuff going on. Yeah, whatever happened to summer vacation. <laughs> really, really. I will say, though, it was fun to start off this week. You had an interesting piece in your weekly Taking Care of Business newsletter. Can you talk a little bit about your inspiration for that? Yeah, I was in New York and uh, saw the Tony Award-winning Broadway play Oslo. That's about the making of the Israeli-Palestinian peace accord. That's the one that was famously signed in the White House Rose Garden in September 1993 between uh, Bill Clinton, Yasser Arafat, and Yitzhak Rabin. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of like Hamilton. You wouldn't think that 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 would be the making of a play. First of all, I love a good drama. I'd see a great drama any day over most musicals uh, in New York, uh, you know, there's some great ones, the Hamilton, of course, being one of them. Uh, but I love dramas. And this was a three hour play about uh, the making of the peace accord. And I have to say, it was gripping. No small feat for three hours. Yeah, and no stars, uh, you know, that I knew of, certainly no household name actors or actresses. Um, and, you know, it was just amazing to see how these basically small group of, of Norwegians started off. Uh, there'd been the peace talks going on in London that were sort of going on endlessly and getting nowhere. And how they took it upon themselves to do this alternative, uh, secretive thing and and got uh, increasingly higher and higher level uh, Palestinians and Israelis and, you know, used some cunning and a little bit of uh, trickery and, and sort of got everyone at the table and, and you know, people who had never come face to face between an Arab and an Israeli. And, and so uh, it, it was just very well done. It's, I saw it build somewhere as a dark comedy. I'm not sure I'd call it that. It's just a great drama. And, and it really shows you know, that, that old Margaret Mead line about how a small group of committed indi individuals can change the, change the world, change the course of history. And that's certainly the case here. I, I really recommend it. And, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to understand how that mentality, how those uh, that sort of bold kind of thinking would translate to the world of climate change or any of the other things that we all talk about and, and work on day in and day out. I believe the phrase in the newsletter was 
how important it can be to improvise at every step, which certainly seems relevant to some of the things going on globally today. Yeah, I mean, we do that <laughs> in GreenViz, so we're doing that on this podcast, but we certainly uh, you know, need more great improv- improvisation um, and thinking differently and bold thinking. When you put that together, you know, getting the right people at the table with you know, taking on ideas that people have been trying to get at for a long time, but trying it from a completely different, audacious approach, um, you know, things can happen. We need that. Well, that seems like a good a sentiment as any to jump right into the week in review. So climate change, um, again, is uh, on the front lines. Um, we had some great pieces, and one of them was by you, Lauren, talking about uh, something that came out of the so-called G20, uh, now one less, at least when it comes to climate change, uh, called Climate and Cash. Uh, what's it talking about the G20-approved guide to disclosure? Uh, tell us about that. There's definitely some acronyms in play here that were a bit of a mouthful to get down, but what we're talking about here is the Task Force on Climate-Related financial disclosure that is housed within the G20 connected body, the Financial Stability Board. Here to for TCFD. <laughs> yes. So the upshot here is that this is a Michael Bloomberg-led group that evolved within really the last year to sort of take a closer look at this idea that's often discussed broadly, sort of how can we make corporate disclosures related to climate change more useful, um, more a part of everyday business decisions and how companies think about their overall reporting burden. Um, I talked to Curtis Ravenel, who's the director of sustainability for Bloomberg LP and is also a driving force behind the task force on climate-related financial disclosure. And for him, the important thing here was to clarify that this is not another group that wants you to send them your data on sustainability. Really the point of this document, it was about 70 pages, so not light reading, but broken down into lots of sort of helpful graphics. It was assembled with input from companies like Daimler and Dow, as well as big investors, including BlackRock and JP Morgan. And the goal was really to sort of look at first why companies should take climate change seriously as a variable that impacts financial performance, but also what constitutes useful financial disclosures. And interestingly, one of the more forward-looking ideas, how specific scenario planning, looking at potential fallout for your company in a world that's two degrees warmer versus something potentially more catastrophic, like five degrees warmer, um, could be used to think about bracing your business for things like volatility in resources that are available and also geopolitical conflict that's increasingly part of the conversation. Yeah, and I think it's important to point out that this is not former Mayor Bloomberg's uh, only initiative uh, recently. He just, uh, just this week on Wednesday, he, along with uh, Governor Jerry Brown of California, announced the America's Pledge, which is basically an effort to to create a, a, a proxy group, a, a, a sub-national group that is going to stand in for the United States at the uh, conferences at the, the one that's happening in, in Bonn, Germany in November, and basically to uh, carry on the work that the U.S. committed to as part of the Paris Climate Agreement. And so, uh, and, and a lot of the and that's in partnership with our, our friends at the Rocky Mountain Institute and the World Resources Institute. Um, and all of these, uh, the work being done by the 
task force, the TCFD, uh, is an important part of, of just you know creating some of the foundational information for that uh, and and how companies are, are going to engage. America's Pledge, this 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 new one came out of uh, this effort called We're, We're Still In that was basically started as a full-page ad uh, after the climate withdrawal, but ended up being uh, over a thousand companies and, and hundreds of U.S. cities and I think nine states and a bunch of other you know colleges and other institutions who are committing to basically the uh, climate uh, Paris Climate Accord, and so this is really interesting momentum. We had another story run this week that I think is just worth mentioning, which is uh, something that that we've all been talking about, but basically that was Trump's Paris pullout, you know, inadvertent gift. And this is something that came out of the UK from James Murray, editor of Business Green, saying, does the world owe Trump a thank you letter? I'm not so sure we do, but uh, the point is well taken that this is something that uh, really did give uh, the climate uh, movement a kind of a shot in the arm. It's definitely an interesting confluence of events. And you mentioning Michael Bloomberg's other group reminds me that we need to update sort of our landscape of all the, the new players that have sort of come out of the woodwork in the last year or so. But one other thing I think that's definitely worth mentioning for for listeners who are thinking about reporting and financial disclosure on a regular basis is the way this TCFD report thinks about risk. We're increasingly seeing climate risk brought up in reports by groups like the World Economic Forum. It's showing up in more sustainability reports as well. And one central thing that I think was helpful in this report was that it divides the idea of risk into two separate categories. So you have the physical risks posed by climate change, things like sea level rise and how that could affect your real estate assets um, or or other assets at the company, the stranded assets and sort of the picture of emissions for companies that that work in fossil fuel-related fields is a big one. But also the other camp is sort of the political and financial risks, really the uncertainty that could stem from the transition to a low-carbon economy. So in that way, you're thinking about both risk in sort of like a a negative sense, how could your uh, assets be physically threatened, but also a bit more opportunistic when you think about the transition to a low-carbon economy. Sure, that's probably going to bring uncertainty, some risk to the portfolio, but as far as this Bloomberg and G20 report frames, it could also be a big opening for new revenue streams. Meanwhile, there were two other reports on, on climate that came out this week and, and summarized together in a piece that uh, editorial director Heather Clancy wrote. Uh, one came from the uh, climate group's uh, RE100. This is a hundred large companies that have committed to powering their operations entirely with renewable energy. And part of that is a major milestone that they actually now have a hundred large companies that are part of that, um, multi, big multinationals. Uh, and uh, you've, you know, we've talked about a lot of those companies o- over time. What's sort of remarkable is that these companies are intending to be 100% renewably powered by 2020, which is a pretty quick timetable. Uh, and so they put out that report and, you know, sort of crowing about, I, I think, you know, deservedly so, about the great work that these companies are doing. But meanwhile, there was another report from CDP called the Carbon Majors. Uh, it's a database they have of, uh, the, in collaboration with the Climate Accountability Institute, which was showed that that a, a fairly small number of companies are responsible for the lion's share of emissions. Then, seventy-one percent of all the 
carbon emissions generated since 1988, so over the past basically 30 years, came from just 100 companies. And um, and so the, the question we looked at, and Heather looked at, I think it's interesting, is does the RE100, these 100 leaders in renewable energy, you know, counterbalance these major polluters? And the answer is not even really close. But it's just interesting to look at, at, at sort of the good news and bad news. And as encouraging as things are, there's still a lot of work to be done. Right. Unfortunately, there's zero overlap between the 100 companies that the RE100 highlighted that have committed to going 100% renewable and the 100 companies worldwide that have committed to this lion's share of emissions since 1988. So I think this was a really interesting point of context. And just to get a little more specific, the heaviest emitters that we're talking here in the, the fossil fuel segment include names you might expect, ExxonMobil, BP, Chevron, also state-owned organizations like Saudi Aramco, Coal India, and several big Chinese-controlled coal companies. So I think the other thing this drives home is really sort of the global nature of emissions reductions we're going to have to look at and, and sort of keeping an eye on this balance as we hear about more really intriguing corporate commitments. Zero overlap. That's really remarkable. But let's move over to a kind of a happier story, which is, I think, an interesting development in the automotive industry. Senior writer Barbara Grady wrote a piece this week uh, called, uh, it says, GM and Michelin are putting the brakes on deforestation linked to rubber. So we've been hearing a lot more lately about deforestation and specifically corporate commitments to end deforestation. We ran a piece in May around Johnson & Johnson and L'Oreal stepping up efforts and a uh, number of other companies. Over time, we've been seeing this uh, as more of a, of a corporate commitment bandwagon around beef and cattle, around timber, palm oil and soy oil, and now rubber. Yeah, this was pretty crazy to me. There was a statistic in Barbara's story that auto and aircraft tire manufacturing consumes 70% of the world's raw rubber. Yeah, granted, I know we have a lot of wheeled vehicles to get around, but that, that seems like a huge proportion to me. Um, and one study by the University of New Anglia estimates that 8.4 million additional hectares of rubber will be put into cultivation by 2024. So this is definitely a, a big area, even though I think sort of on the consumer side, you hear a lot more about commodities like palm oil, um, corn, soy, this is sort of uh, another element that's really important to big companies in the world of transportation in particular. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because, you know, I'm pretty sure no one's going to buy a car because the tires were sourced from Forest Stewardship Council certified uh, forests. Um, and so this is not necessarily something, you know, one of, the, one of these things that companies do to differentiate their products in the marketplace. And that, to me, just makes this even more remarkable and, and praiseworthy that, that, the, that they're stepping up and, and working with, in this case, World Wildlife Fund, WWF, to figure out ways to, to bring attention to this issue and actually do something about it. At last month's Verge Hawaii event, we hosted a Sustainable Tourism Summit, bringing together about 85 representatives from the tourism industry to talk about what it takes to bring sustainability more into that sector. And here to talk about that event 
is GreenBiz Director of Strategic Programs and the events organizer and co-facilitator, Shauna Rappaport. Hey, Shauna. Hi, Joel. So first, give us a little backstory about why this event in the first place. Yeah, well, you know, tourism at large, right, from a climate standpoint, represents 5% of global emissions. There are not a lot of other industries that have such a huge role to play or represent rather a huge uh, leverage point trim tab when we're talking about really advancing climate solutions and a clean economy. Certainly in the context of our Verge Hawaii event, which is really to a large extent convened around the 100% renewable energy um, mandate that the state of Hawaii is working towards, the opportunity to really convene key stakeholders uh, working across the tourism industry to look not only at uh, the role of advancing clean energy, but other other aspects of the tourism industry and how to advance sustainability felt like a great fit. So um, it was a unique opportunity to partner with the Hawaii Tourism Authority, who was our primary sponsor on the event, and to partner with Sustainable Travel International and convene a really interesting group of, of, of uh, industry leaders and using our summit format of creating a much more participatory and solutions-focused session. So you'd think that the tourism industry in Hawaii would be all about sustainability. I mean, this is a, this incredible natural wonder of, of, of islands and the volcanoes and rainforests and beaches and coral reefs and everything that goes on there. Is that not the case? Or talk a little bit about how the industry perceives of sustainability and renewable energy. Well, you know, I must admit it was remarkable to um, really appreciate the the diversity of perspectives, of experience, of knowledge reflected in this room of, again, about 85 people coming from everywhere, from lodging and hotels to transportation, including airlines and ground. We had destination management organizations, tour operators, um, and the, the breadth of education about both the importance of sustainability and conservation and a sense of place um, was really quite diverse. And so, you know, we can get into this in a moment, but certainly one of the key takeaways was really the importance of education. And that's across every aspect of, from hotel leadership to, um, to travelers themselves, is really deepening an understanding and, and, and appreciation of the importance of, of protecting the very places that um, represent ultimately huge economic drivers, certainly for the state of Hawaii and many of the other most beautiful places in the world. So give us a little flavor. This was uh, like a five-hour event, um, 85 people in the room. Talk a little bit about what went on. Yeah, so we, we, in a way, applied the same format that we've been developing at our Verge events over the last couple of years, which really is about elevating and, 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 and the, the collective intelligence of the people in the room. So with the exception of an opening panel that featured some senior leaders from Hawaii government and, uh, and Hawaiian Airlines, um, you know, after we kind of set the context, we dove right in. We had basically two primary working sessions that really gave folks the opportunity to self-identify, self-select in real Real time, first based on their um, sort of which uh, affinity group they represent. So we had hotel leadership, we had folks who focus on marketing and promotion, folks interested in conservation, um, and they had an opportunity to break out and really identify what are the key challenges to advancing sustainability in those areas. 
The main working session portion of the day was um, actually a, a, a facilitation tool called World Cafe, which allowed folks to get a lot of interaction with different groups, but in a very solutions-focused uh, context. So around specific topics like accelerating operational efficiency or engaging employees, implementing a communication strategy, integrating with local communities. We had others focused on energy and um, managing food and water. And the goal of those sessions was for participants to really share best practices, but but uh, generate actionable both short-term and longer-term, or what we call low-hanging and high-hanging fruits, around how to really meaningfully advance sustainability. Wow. So what were some of the big takeaways? What, what came out of all this? One of the biggest surprises to me was the extent to which education emerged across all almost every one of the groups that we explored. After the working sessions, table hosts or discussion leaders had an opportunity to stand up and report in three minutes what were the key sort of insights and takeaways from that working session. And I must admit, education came up across almost every group, whether it be, again, the importance of educating hotel leadership about um, the the value of investing in sustainability, whether it's about educating employees, educating locals about the ways in which they can work with tourists, and, and um, so education was definitely a key theme. Relatedly, but but somewhat differentiated is sort of the role of communication in all of that. And again, there are a lot of different kinds of communication strategies. And I think one of the key insights was really how important it is for every um, both sector within the industry or, or, or player within the industry, and then even the leadership within all of those organizations to really kind of step back and think about what's the story that we're telling here, both as a as a hotel, as a destination management organization, as a tour operator, but also what's the story that we as an industry want to be telling about tourism and sustainable tourism? Um, so those were a couple of the key key takeaways. So that story is uh, going to be going to be unfolding. This whole format of the uh, of the summits, these half day working sessions with eighty or hundred, maybe one hundred and twenty people in the room, actually working on something, has been become a part of of all of our events. Talk about just a little bit about what's going to be happening at our Verge event in September. We're going to have more summits, right? We definitely will, yes. Um, our Verge 17 Summit Series is um, is being built out as we speak. Um, we're, we're really excited. We have an incredible constellation of partners, really. We, we have four summits this year. One is focused on uh, the Circular Materials Summit. Um, we're working with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute, Closed Loops, Loop Fund. Um, on Wednesday, we'll be convening a healthy adaptive building summit again with um, the leading organizations advancing this stuff well, USGBC, um, ILFI. On Thursday, we're convening our Urban Mobility Summit. That's in partnership with McKinsey and, and UPS. And then on, on the Monday and Tuesday of Verge, we're, we're uh, delighted to be partnering and hosting this year the, the REBA Summit, Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance. So again, our summits are reflecting sort of the spectrum of issues that we that we explore at Virgin. We're really excited to be able to offer our attendees the opportunity to engage with one another in such a meaningful participatory and hopefully, um, you know, context that, that hopefully leaves them with some really actionable actionable opportunities. So we'll talk about all of those before and after Verge 17 in September. But for now, Shauna Rappaport, Director of Strategic Programs, uh, thanks or mahalo. Mahalo, Joel.
Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back. So this week, we wanted to take a closer look at a new report on the global evolution of clean technology. Joining me now is Ki Lu, strategy and research partner at Sing Capital, based in Beijing. How are you, Ki? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Lauren. So let's start off with the basics. Can you just give us a brief overview of Sing Capital and the types of companies that the firm works with? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so Sing Capital was founded in the year 2000, and we are China's first fund management firm dedicated to sustainable technology investing. And we were founded on the philosophy of doing well by doing good. So that's why we are so focused in this area, because we think this is really the future of, of um, our world. And we have invested in close to 100 companies in 17 years. Um, this company is actually diverse in their focus sector, location, and stage. But in general, we invest in companies in environmental protection, clean energy, energy efficiency, new materials, sustainable agriculture, sustainable mobility, and and also intelligent technologies. Yeah, so we're talking about a pretty wide range of companies. And one of the ideas that was pointed out in the new report that you guys released recently um, is this idea that we are witnessing sort of a next wave in the clean tech evolution. I think the term used is sustained tech. Um, And I was hoping you could explain sort of the difference between those two concepts and why this evolution could be important. So this is actually based on our observation of how sustainability industries evolve over the 17 years. So we think it has gone through three phases, actually. Um, the first is called EnviroTech, and second, CleanTech, and now the third, SustainTech. So the first stage, we have seen companies focus more on um, sectors such as uh, waste water treatment, solid waste treatment, solar PV module manufacturing, and wind farm development. So these are quite policy-driven and capex-intensive um, sectors, and the companies rely on rapid growth to achieve better economies of scale. And the second stage, clean tech, we have seen more, more and more innovation taking over as a driver, and um, more companies are using CapEx efficient mode and high value to generate revenue. So some examples are like battery companies, LED lighting companies, semiconductors, and new materials. And we think in about the year 2012, it has come to the third and the current stage, SustainTech, and especially in China, because we've seen demand taking over as the new driver. And disruptive innovation in both technology and business model are driving or uh, uh, generating more and more interesting companies. So these companies are 
using intelligent technologies and also internet connections, as well as um, business model innovation to disrupt the traditional clean tech landscape. And some examples include um, autonomous driving, electric vehicle, smart homes, and smart agriculture, and some smart grid companies, such as virtual power plant companies. Yeah, that's fascinating. And you mentioned sort of the, the context that you've seen this shift, particularly in China specifically. So I was hoping to get a little more context on sort of the, the geographic element that, that we're dealing with here. Um, I think a lot of people around the world are obviously aware of China's rise to prominence in clean tech investing and technological deployment. But what do you see changing internally? And is there anything that external events like the U.S. pulling out of the Paris Agreement stand to to impact with this dynamic? A very good question. Um, let's talk about internal factors first. First of all, I'd like to uh, I, I definitely agree that China is the uh, a global leader in, in sustainable development or investing. And um, it's not only because China has pledged to peak its CO2 emission by 2030, um, but actually more and more because of public awareness of environmental and energy problems inside of China. And I think most importantly, China also sees the development of sustainability industries as a good opportunity to upgrade its manufacturing industries and switch the country from resource-intensive and labor-intensive economy to an innovation-driven economy. I think that's the most important factor. And I also think that the changes not only come from policies and incentives from the government, but also from technology innovation and market demand. And when you ask about um, U.S. pulling out from the Paris Agreement, I don't actually think it will have a um, huge impact on China because a lot of uh, clean energy, the cost is uh, reducing dramatically. Not only, um, for example, solar, PV, or power storage. So. I, I think in this in this way that uh, clean energy is already making a very good use case and economic case um, compared to traditional energy. And also, um, actually, uh, right after the, um, President Donald Trump announced that uh, the pulling out from Paris Agreement, we have seen more and more clean tech companies from the U.S turning to China for um, for its vast market. So I think in this sense, we have actually seen some positive signs um, in this area in China. Yeah, when it comes to that forward-looking element, sort of the technologies that companies are working on now, uh, the, the new report from Sing Capital mentioned several very sort of buzzy sectors like virtual reality, blockchain, advanced materials, 3D printing. Which of these areas are you most intrigued by and why? Well, I'd like to uh, first emphasize that in the report, we, um, we mentioned that there are two megatrends that are shaping the future of sustain sustainability industries. 
they are Internet of Things and artificial intelligence. So thinking about it from a sustainable development point of view, with all the data we gather from Internet of Things and the data ana analyzing capability developed by machine learning and artificial intelligence, we are actually for the first time able to manage energy and resource use at a, this level, at a very high level. So I truly believe that these technologies will bring us to uh, waste-free, energy-efficient, and eco-friendly future. Um, and when it comes to more specific technologies, as you mentioned, well, I think all, first of all, all technologies are promising and investors can always find good technology to invest in these areas. And maybe I, um, I will prioritize advanced materials because they are a, a group of large variety of technologies. And in the report, we mentioned that advanced, uh, advanced materials will be a $16 trillion market by the year 2050. So it's the largest market trigger compared to the other technologies. Right, right. And to that end, I also wanted to ask you about how you're seeing individual corporations now potentially um, investing or somehow interacting with companies in the, the broad clean technology space. Um, in the U.S., we're hearing a lot more about corporations, uh, the big ones being like Google and Apple investing in renewable energy, establishing new green bonds, other sorts of climate finance tools. In China, I was curious if you could explain a little bit how you see the private sector playing into the country's sustainability evolution. The private sector companies are aggressively stepping into sustainability industries. And they're not only installing um, solar PV on top, on, on their rooftop, but they're also expanding their business to sustainability related business. Or they actually start new business or acquire um, sustain tech companies to make them. Um, a future sustained tech company. And also large companies in China, for example, um, some well-known names like Alibaba, Tencent, and Huawei, they are all developing energy-related business based on their own speciality, of course. Looking ahead, are there any important milestones or sort of trends? You mentioned two megatrends identified in the report that you'll be watching to sort of gauge how the market is evolving for this wave of sustainable technology? Um, yeah, well, there are different kinds of milestones, but I think for investors, we definitely would like to see more and more investment in this area so, it, so that it shows um, the other investors are also seeing the same trend as we see. And I remember I read an article by MIT. It, it says that among early stage clean tech investors, there is already a trend of increasing investment into software and smart components. And um, we would like to see that trend in growth stage and more mature business investment as well. I think in that case, it definitely proves that uh, our ob observation of the trend is true, becoming true. Great. Well, big story to follow. Key Lu of Sing Capital, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.
One of the visitors to the Green Biz office last week was Patrick Flynn, Senior Director of Sustainability at Salesforce. Got a great download on all kinds of things on the net zero greenhouse gas emissions program and the carbon neutral cloud and uh, lots and lots of things. But the one thing, Patrick, that I really want to talk about now was what you're doing with real estate and sort of this process you go, you've gone through to create so many lead platinum buildings, including the upcoming Salesforce Tower, this monstrous thousand plus foot building in downtown San Francisco that you can see from pretty much anywhere in the Bay Area. Anyway, first of all, welcome to GreenViz. Thanks, Joel. Thanks for having me. So talk a little bit about how uh, the work you do is, is filtered out through the real estate part, uh, uh, the buildings, and do you own them or lease them, and, and how do you decide which buildings to take how far? It's, it's pretty yeah. interesting. Yeah, so thanks for having me here. Um, we work, my team and I, really closely with the real estate team. We've got a, a tremendous team there, and one of the nice things going for us is high-performance buildings are sustainable buildings. They're healthier, they're more inspiring, they're better for the planet, and so we can tap into this willingness to innovate and to do the right things and to set a leading example in our buildings. With all of that willingness, we felt the need really to think about streamlining and clarifying the process as being really instrumental. We had all of this um, activity, but we needed organization to it. So one of the artifacts we ended up developing was this thing that really ends up looking a little bit like a flow chart. Um, and you know, you'll, you'll approach it with a building that's maybe undergoing renovation. Is it a major renovation or not? If it's a light renovation, maybe we don't consider a, a deep remodeling or, or lead certification. But if it's a deep renovation, you know, maybe. Um, and then is it a marquee building? Well, if yes, we want to pursue some of the highest green building certifications in the world, like LEED Platinum. So a marquee building is one that you'd put your name on? What, what does that mean? I don't think we've defined it explicitly, but yeah, I, I think anything in the center of a city, high-rise building with our name, something like that. Um, but then, you know, more black and white is the size. If it's over a certain number of square feet, if we're going to be in it for a long term versus a short term, all of those things end up being these decision nodes. And if you hit a yes, then it leads you to an outcome. Pursue lead platinum, pursue lead gold. And if it's a small building we may only be in for a little while, then, you know, the end of it is use your best judgment. We wouldn't want to, you know, hinder any willingness to pursue lead, lead projects down there. Now, the outcome of all of this is that we were able to cut out a significant number of the addresses while leaving in a huge number of the square feet. I think it was, you know, 80% of the addresses were in this category of use your best discretion, but 90% of the square feet happens to be in these large buildings in major downtowns where we'll be for a while. And so that flow chart really ended up, like I said, sort of structuring and clarifying the momentum and the willingness to pursue lead. And one of the interesting things about this, Patrick, is that you don't own most of these buildings, right? Yeah, that's that's right. So for the most part, we lease our office spaces. And when I think about LEED certifications, what I mentioned, a lot of that's commercial interiors certifications. But nonetheless, we want to push property managers, building owners to achieve 
green building certifications for the base building. And definitely when we're looking at entering a new lease, we really value uh, whether it is certified or certainly the, the potential to become certified. Now, I think of that lack of direct control over the whole building as an asset more than a liability. And, you know, and, and here's, here's what I'm thinking. We want to transform the way businesses interact with the environment. The buildings, the building stock is a huge part of that. And if we can open up a dialogue with a property manager about a particular building, maybe where we don't even have full occupancy, and get them to pursue green certification, it, it does well for us, for the other tenants, for the surrounding community, for the ecosystem around it, and potentially for that property manager's entire portfolio. So it's this leverage effect that we have, and, and we can really use that, I think, to open up dialogue and to drive change that's bigger than just something within the four walls of Salesforce. Well, speaking of driving change, one of the other innovations you have was a, a scorecard that came, that you developed to look at, at some of the materials and finishes that go into the buildings. How does that work? Yeah, it's, it's this first of its kind thing, and, and I know soon we'll be sharing it we used it to identify hotspots. And so you can think about it as, you know, is it is it a part of the building that people come into contact with a lot? Well, you know, then we should probably focus on it. Um, how, how bad is the material that we're talking about, whether from an occupancy standpoint or a production standpoint, uh, the impact it has on the, on the people who produce it, and also how much of it is there? You know, a bunch of different cri criteria. Is there a replacement? How much cost increment is that going to be? And all of that mixed into this model that was able to, cl again, clarify and bring focus to this willingness to do the right thing and this momentum that we have at Salesforce, uh, clarify it and allow us to focus on the few areas that really matter. And I'm sure this must play out with your employees. I know you've got this massive, was it 5,000 member Earth Force yeah. employee engagement? I mean, that how many companies... You know, they're all hungry to get even a handful or a few hundred employees, and I don't know quite how you manage that, but but I'm sure that they must have a say in some of this as well. Yeah, absolutely. Half a step back here is that Salesforce, as a corporate culture, in my experience, is is the most willing to explore business as a force for good, business doing the right thing. And it's a culture that's one of the most innovative in the world. Forbes is innovator of the decade. And so from this Earthforce group, you're right, 5,000 members strong, unbelievable. We get all of these ideas, all of these observations, right? It's a distributed crowdsourcing of opportunities for us to lead. And we've got this integrated philanthropic model where 1% of employee time goes to nonprofit causes. So it's also a way that we can activate employees to, to change their communities, improve the lives of others, improve the state of the planet. It's, it's a wonderful organization. And mostly it's, it's something that we help foster. We, I don't think of us as the driving force behind it. I think that's the membership. We just, where there are opportunities to have global level campaigns or, or share news and updates, we, we use our, our corporate voice. So when we meet back here at GreenBiz headquarters in a couple of years, in uh, middle of 2019, what's the, what do you want to be able to tell me about something that's new and innovative? What are you hoping to be able to pull off? What's your dream? 
forward-looking statements aside, right? <laughs> um, I, I, what I'm thinking about at this moment in time, a couple things. We've got all of these companies of all shapes and sizes all around the world committing to things like the We Are Still In campaign, to, to stay into the commitments of the Paris Accord. Hopefully, within a two-year period, any of the barriers associated with all of those companies achieving their lofty goals have been eliminated. I think we're on the brink of this crystallization of demand, a clarification of demand, whether it's renewable energy and what that means, the, the high quality renewable energy, what that means to corporate off takers, how to make that available to companies who maybe don't own their own data centers or offices like Salesforce, who have maybe smaller megawatt appetite than some of the big guys. Um, all of those things, all of those barriers in the renewable energy world, certainly within a couple of years, this just deep understanding that high performance buildings are sustainable buildings, that building a healthy, resource efficient, inspiring office space is good for business, reduces sick days, increases cognitive abilities, reduces energy waste and materials and water. All, it's an all of the above thing. I think the same holds true for high performance data centers and really high performance businesses, strong businesses tie an interest in being a force for good in the world to their core mission, pull in top talent, pull in like-minded customers, inspire their employees, take on big innovative challenges. And a couple of years from now, I hope that's just something people know. Great. Well, maybe we'll have that conversation high atop the new Salesforce Tower and looking out yeah, at the great view. Patrick Flynn, Senior Director of Sustainability at Salesforce. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks, Joel. Thanks for having me. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find links to the organization's stories, other things we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks to our podcast director, Stephanie Joyce. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And we'll be back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back.